Welcome to the Haver Show. We're going to do something a little different this week and a lot more dynamic. But first, the guest. He is Hall of Fame NBA photographer Andrew D. Bernstein. He hosts the Legends of Sport podcast and runs the Instagram account ADB Photo Inc. That's ADB Photo Inc. Andy has been up close and personal with Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Larry, Magic, you name it. And if you think about the most iconic photographs in NBA history, chances are it was shot by Andy. So what we're going to do is talk about some of these iconic photographs by breathing life into them with stories and texture. And this is my favorite part. We're going to learn a lot about all the work that goes into photography. It is a lot, way more sophisticated, way more technique than I had ever imagined. So we taped this interview on video as well. So if you want to watch this pod and experience it visually, then here's how you do it. Click the link in the show notes to watch Andy take me behind the lens of his favorite NBA photos. But if you're not into that, believe me, the audio version is super enjoyable and just as educational. So this is one of my favorite episodes I've done. Without further ado, Hall of Fame photographer Andrew D. Bernstein. Andy, how are you, man? Yeah, I'm great, Tom. I'm great out here in Southern Cal, uh, waiting for everything to hopefully open up sometime soon. But I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing okay. It's a good. rainy day here. Probably not good for uh, pho- pho- photography outside. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you're going to school me. You're going to educate me here on all cool. of the, I don't know, the ins and outs of NBA photography. Because as I'm mm-hmm. watching The Last Dance, I'm seeing you in all of these photos, in, uh, in all this video, <laughs> And you're in the middle of these, these baths of champagne, just like getting sprayed about. And I'm sitting here like, man, how much equipment did Andy have to go through yeah. during champagne, championship uh, experiences? And I guess we'll start there is like, what, would you have to put like a cover on your, on your equipment or do you have, is it waterproof? Like has, has that changed over time? Well, no offense to my compatriots in the media, but um that's the wimpy way to go, man. I go in, no protection whatsoever on me or the equipment. And uh, it, it, it's as close to combat sports photography as you can get in that situation. What I learned over the years is that I have to have a backup rig. I have to have a backup camera, lens, and flash that I can stash somewhere. And, you know, a lot of times I've been in a friendly arena, quote unquote, you know, Lakers arena. Um, where I can go in the training room before the game and just stash that, you know, put it yeah. someplace I know is going to be protected, but also is accessible because experience has taught me that um, champagne and electronics are not really good together. <laughs> so I go in, um, you know, just blazing away and, you know, hopefully the flash will last as long as possible. And when it dies, um, I usually have actually a flash in a pouch um, on me. Uh, which is getting soaked, but at least the flash is protected. But then I, I have to go get that other rig. So there have been some uh, nightmare scenarios with that. Um, I'll tell you one if you, if you, if you want to hear it. Yes. So it, it was one of the Bulls championships that they won in Chicago. And honestly, I don't remember. It could have been, could have been the fourth one. I'm not sure. But um, I had stashed the camera, just like I said, in the Bulls training room. The, the trainer was super nice to let me do that. And as I go in to, you know, change cameras and just dry off for a second, my eyes and everything, 
I, I wheel around and just as I'm coming out and ready to, you know, go back into battle, somebody had popped a champagne cork right literally like six inches from me. And they didn't know I was coming because I was coming around a corner and it hit me right in my shooting eye, my left eye. Oh no. Went, which went like, like that. Oh no. <laughs> and, and it was, it was terrible. I mean, luckily it didn't get me in the eye. It got me like right below it. And uh, I still had to shoot. So I had to shoot with my right eye, which I could never do. So I think everything was out of focus in that, from that point on. Because we were I'm shooting manual fan, so I'm imagining Tony C yeah. uh, getting, getting blinded in his eye just at his peak of his powers. Yeah, dude, and I'm a Red Sox fan too. And figure that out, coming from Brooklyn, then I'm a Red Sox fan. But well, Andy, I'm from uh, outside of New York City in Westport, Connecticut. So oh you and God. I both Here have war go. stories of, of yeah. growing up in a city where there are no Red Sox fans. Yeah, well, here, here's the backstory on that. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn. My family were diehard, I mean, like ridiculous diehard Brooklyn Dodger fans. So the team, obviously, that they hated the most were the Yankees, right? Yes. So when I became of age and started to, to get into baseball, it was the early 60s, you know, I couldn't even bring a Yankees baseball card to my house. This true story. So I was, became a Mets fan, of course, right? Yeah. So then I ended up fast forward going to UMass. And all my friends, I wouldn't have any friends if I didn't like the Red Sox, obviously. And I didn't have an American League team, right? I had the Mets. So I became a, a huge Red Sox fan. And, um, you know, I was gone from UMass when they played each other in 86, thank God. But I'm still, I'm still, still hearing about that from my friends because I don't know who I would have rooted for at that point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The moment when the ball went through uh, Buckner's legs, you would have figured out who you're rooting for. Yeah, how sad, how sad. But, but um, I mean, it was great for the Mets. And I was a kid in 69 when, when they won, you know, the Miracle Mets. I was 11 years old. And Gil Hodges literally lived two blocks from me on Bedford Avenue. Oh, cool. And we kids made a little parade for him down Bedford Avenue and he and his wife came out they waved you know it was the, the greatest thing ever as a kid I wanted to grow up to be Bud Harrelson and uh, wore number three my whole life uh, in Little League and when I played you know any kind of basketball or anything but of course you know had to settle for being on the other side of the camera behind the camera <laughs> instead yeah. of in front of it but you got to cover uh, some Dodgers teams for sure oh yeah for sure yeah I, that was my you know one of my first Great breaks was becoming the Dodgers team photographer in 84, which was like the, the greatest thing that ever happened to my dad and my uncles, you know, <laughs> um, never mind that, like, that it was me getting the job is the fact that I was like wearing Dodger blue, you know, so, um, and that was fantastic. That was a great job. And uh, I worked a lot, you know, six weeks of spring training. I did every single home game for the first few years. Um, went on the road a little bit, you know, they made the playoffs in 84 and 85. And then of course, in 88 was that magical season. And um, I took on a young photographer named John Suhu uh, very early. And John uh, is now, you know, Hall of Fame quality photographer has been with the Dodgers since he and I started together. And he took over when I left in 95. Well, I mean, you have one of the most amazing careers in media, uh, if not the most amazing career, the fact that you've been behind the scenes getting access to moments that we can only dream about and then just kind of think about Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, Magic Johnson, LeBron James. You've had a front row seat to all of it. And I'm wondering when you're watching The Last Dance, 
are you sitting there being like, I wonder when I pop up? <laughs> you know, it's so fun because you know, not that I had forgotten about how amazing that era was, but I had forgotten a lot of the nuances because when you're working and you're involved and I, myself and, and my partner in crime, Nat Butler, who's based in the East coast, you know, we, piggyback on a lot of those shoots that NBA Entertainment did. So, you know, we were there right next to the camera guys, my good friends, Michael and Peter Winnick, primarily, who shot all of that footage that you saw. Um, so it was, it was just an incredible time. And as I'm watching it, you know, Nat and I are texting each other. I have friends who are sending me screenshots. Is that you? You know, <laughs> of course, I had a lot more hair and had a mustache and it was like a whole different looking Andy in those days, but, um, but it, it, it's just so much fun. And, and honestly, you know, the basketball part of it was great, but was, but also the um, camaraderie and the teamwork of all of us as a group at NBA photos and NBA entertainment. And to finally see that footage, um, you know, emerge and be produced in such an incredible way um, as a tribute, not only to the bulls, but to Michael, but, but to, the incredible expertise of NBA entertainment made me feel, you know, really gratified that I was part of that. What's a moment that you are so happy to see got the light of day that, mm. that in the documentary, you're like, I'm so glad people, the millions of people who are watching got to see that in ways that I got to see. Yeah, that's a great question. There were a few of them, um, primarily with the dream team, because I spent seven weeks with that team, embedded with them from day one of training camp till they, till they won the gold medal. And there was so much behind the scenes stuff going on. And, and that's kind of been my forte. I mean, a lot of people know me from my action photos and all that, but my true love, honestly, is the photojournalistic part of just being a fly on the wall yeah. and just being with those guys. So going out with Michael golfing in Monte Carlo, I mean, you know, it was amazing, right? Or hanging out in the training room with Michael and Magic or being on the bus, um, the practices, which were epic and ridiculous, you know, and were so well documented in, in The Last Dance. And then, um, you know, just uh, being in, in the locker room celebrations and the final episode was super cool where, where we went to uh, Michael's suite, you know, and he's sitting at the grand piano and you know, Michael Jordan's really good at a lot of things, especially basketball and golf, but the dude does not have to play piano, <laughs> but, and, but, which was really, really, really great and fun. And, um, you know, there I am in the middle of all that and, and, and visible in the shot, which, you know, my wife, my kids were like freaked out. Like, that's you, you know, it was well, crazy. I'm going to share it right here. Oh yeah, that's the shot. Yeah, this is the yeah. shot. I just pulled up. There's still a watermark on it. I'm sorry. Oh, that's all right. There's your yeah. name right there on yeah. Michael Jordan's yeah. stomach. Yeah, is right. Andrew D. Bernstein. Look at this photo. You are you are sitting there with yeah. Michael Jordan after '98. They repeat the three-peat as his shirt says. So yeah. how did he yeah. get there? And how did you decide how to position yourself for the shot? Well, great, great stuff, man. I uh, you know of course shot the last shot, Michael's final shot, uh, where he, you know, he uh, made the move on Byron Russell, hit the shot with six point whatever to go. Then there's all that crazy celebration on the court, crazy celebration in the locker room. And then my boss at the time, Carmen Romanelli said, look, with the NBA crew is going over to the hotel because the Bulls had decided to stay in Salt Lake City and not fly back to, 
to Chicago after the game. So they wanted to party it up. Yep. So he said, just run over there. So of course I ran, literally ran over there. It's about 10 blocks from Delta center to their hotel. But you didn't get a ride. No, I, no, I was soaking wet. Um, there's a lot of traffic around the arena and you know, there's just all kinds of, so I just literally ran and I was drenched in champagne and sweat and everything else. I get over there and I go into the hotel and I knew which floor where they were on. So I made my way up to the floor and um, I'm sure you had this experience in college, but like, it was like a Saturday night on your dorm floor. Yes. I mean, it was freaking insane. What was going on in there? You know, carbon electras running around with Rodman. There must've been 900 champagne bottles, you know, littered all over the place, cigar smoke going on. And I heard all the commotion down at the end in the presidential suite. So I made my way down and that there was Michael. This was the scene as I walked in, right? And he's sitting there holding court with the stogie and everybody. And uh, this particular moment, he's turned into to somebody. He goes, what do you want to hear, man? What do you want to hear? I'll play it. You know? <laughs> it was great. It was really great. He's, was he's, the, he's the piano man at that moment looking for, uh, looking for tips. Yeah, you know, my friend Walter Yost, uh, the, the great, incredible, legendary photographer, you can kind of see sort of behind Michael's right shoulder, um, kind of scooch down a little bit. You see the side of his face. Walter Yost is literally one of the Mount Rushmore heads of sports photography. And he reminded me the other day when I sent him this picture, we were laughing about it. He said, I think he was trying to play want to be like Mike. Seriously. That no. he, you know, that yes, that that so, it's when crazy that, to think about, but it's only like three or four notes, you know, and he was trying to just figure it out. <laughs> that would be amazing if yeah. if, if there was yeah. video of him playing some, some time to dream. Yeah. Right. He is me. Right, right. That I would love so to cool. hear that I would love to hear that sound. So I'm gonna have to uh find out if there's some sound to that we'll do a little we'll do a little fact check in here and see what happens so how do you how do you decide what scene you want to be a part of i want to be part of every scene man um but like you know, like you, you walk past it, dennis rodman and carmen electra yeah, yeah and you see michael jordan at the piano how do you in your head decide okay i'm gonna to go to that one well, I mean, it's Michael Jordan, and it was it, it, that was the the place where everything was happening, basically. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of people in this room. There's another picture I took where I went around the piano and and put the camera like way up high, and you could see that probably, without exaggeration, there's probably 50 people in that in that hotel suite, you know, at that moment. And um, you know, I I just need to be in the action, whether it's right after the game. And I, I rush to the star player when they just won a championship, which I've done, you know, 37 times. So I kind of know, or it's in the locker room. And back in the day, they used to do the trophy celebration in the locker room, which mm. was insane. And now we're each assigned to a, a particular player or the coach um, following the championship. So, um, you know, my boss, Joe Motti might say, okay, you go with Steph Curry. And he might say to Nag, you go with Clay Thompson. And he might say to Garrett Elwood, you go with Steve Kerr, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's just, um, you know, well-oiled machine at this point. But, uh, you know, back in the day when I first started doing this, it was just me for the first couple of years. And then Nat Butler came on and we kind of, you know, shared it. And now it's, you know, it's a big, uh, big conglomerate <laughs> of a lot of photographers and a lot of uh, people involved to make this a group effort. I think I got some for you. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the uh -oh. other shot? Drum roll, please. 
Is this the other shot? Oh, yeah, that's the other shot, dude. Yes. Okay. So so you're seeing probably, I don't know, how many people in this picture? 20 at least. And this is only what you could see in front of me. And people are holding up lamps, you know, to light the seat. (laughs) That's like... Oh my God, you're right. This is amazing. This is like an I spy. So there's a guy holding up a black lamp to get the the lighting. I guess the lighting wasn't good in this this scene. No, no. It looks like Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, is in the back right. No. Who is that on the phone? It looks like You know who that is? That's that's my great friend, Andy Thompson, who was one of the- That's that's Andy. Yes, who was one of the executive producers of The Last Stand. So that was his baby. So he's probably calling his wife saying, you're not going to believe this, but I'm in the suite with Michael Jordan. <laughs> but you know who's in this picture? You got over Michael's right shoulder, guy looking in the camera. That's Michael Winnick, one of the greatest cinematographer and videographers in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, behind him um, is um, Mario Porporino, who's a tremendous sound man and also cameraman. To Michael's right, David Falk, you see that him. Um, you can't see Walter Yost because the, all you can see is his flash, but Walter's scooched down. And then next to Walter, you see a guy with another still camera. That's Bill Smith, who's the longtime Bulls photographer and still is. And you see him throughout, actually, throughout the last dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and all kinds of assorted other other people in here, which I can't re- I think that I, I think it's either Ahmad Rashad in front of me in the black uh, jacket holding the cocktail or it could be Quinn Buckner. I'm not sure. So it's one of those guys. All right. So who's the guy in the red blazer? I should know this because yeah, he's in I, a lot I, of the shots. Yeah. And... Yeah. I should know that too. He's a friend of Michael's. Um, I want to say he was a friend of Michael's from, from UNC. I might be wrong, but I'd seen him a lot. He was in that great shot that they had in the locker room afterwards where you know, the smoking stogies and stuff. He was yes. a super nice guy. And I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but he's always really nice to me. And um, God, I wish I, I knew who he was. Yeah, because I've thing noticed him, but out. he hasn't been brought up in the in the documentary. And he's in like every celebration. He's yeah. right there next to Michael. Yeah, yeah. We should find that out. Yeah, for sure. All right, next one on the list. Uh, For those who are listening at at home without the video, we're just going to cycle through some photos here and uh, just kind of get the scene. Of course, this one is the most iconic one. Um, I think you've said this one you would like to be on your tombstone if you have any photo on your tombstone. Is that Yeah, well, you know what? I'd have to... I'd have to say that I probably would rather have a photo of Kobe on my tombstone if I was going to have one on. Um, I said that a while ago about this photo, but uh, hopefully I'm not going to worry about that for a while. You know, yes. say it, Tom. But um, this photo, you know, has stood the test of time and, and has achieved, you know, some, some notoriety, of course, because A, it was Michael's first championship um, and what it meant. You know, we didn't know at the time how many this guy was going to win but what it meant so many years later, um, having been the first one of six, uh, of course, he's got his dad next to him. And, and we all know the, the tragic story of, of his dad's passing. But we also know how close he and his dad were. And um, uh, James Jordan was, was an amazing guy. My dad got to know his dad during the whole Dream Team experience. Hmm. So Michael and I had that kind of, you know, father-son-dad relationship thing that was, you know, Something I'll cherish forever, honestly. And the wonderful kind of cap to this 
photo is that after his dad passed away, I did get a call from Michael's office um, saying that Michael would like a print of this uh, from me. And um, that, oh. that has just stayed with me forever. And uh, I love the fact that, that he looks at this photo and it means a lot to him. And of course that, that makes it mean a lot to me. So when I, when I get photos now, uh, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember going to CVS and getting my, uh, my photos printed. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the millennials <laughs> out there might not know what that is. What, what that's like <laughs> is to take a picture and not have it instantly right there on your phone. Oh, so God, I'm wondering yeah. when you take this photo, are you, are you just so nervous that it might not come out just, just right? Well, you know, Tom, back in the day, we didn't know any different. So we, you know, we as photographers were shooting film, of course, we're shooting manual focus and manual exposure. You had to, you had to know which film to use in what situation. And of course you couldn't toggle back and forth between, you know, different, um, different types of film and different kind of light sources. And you had to have different cameras for different situations with different film in it. So, you know, you take a picture like this, which I did, and I knew the flash went off and I was pretty confident I was in focus, but I don't know what it's going to look like. And like you said, um, now you literally can see it in this moment you shoot it. It, it will come up if you have your camera programmed that way, or you touch the little preview button and it's instant gratification. So back in the day, um, during an all-star weekend or NBA finals, we used to have to keep a lab open in the city that we were in and um, rush the film to the lab. We would have runners take it um, at the quarter breaks and halftime and following the game and following the celebration. And then uh, my boss, Carmen, and I, or you know, group of us would go over there and just literally sit there and wait for the film to get developed. And they'd be taking it out of the dryer and we would take the film before it was even dry, honestly, and cutting it up. And, and um, you know, wow. that was even before the days when film was scanned you know, digitally. So, you know, to see this picture come up, I, I didn't see this picture until uh, maybe late the next day. I, I went to the lab um, once all the film had been developed and been sort of edited and collated um, and saw this and, you know, I was very happy to see this. Wow. <laughs> How, um, as, as someone who is kind of setting up the scene, like it's art, um, mm -hmm. very much so. Yeah. How about the Larry O'Brien trophy? itself the reflection that you get yeah well that's a trick it's it it's kind of uh, the bane of my existence because so many times i've had to shoot the trophy in a portrait uh, situation in, in this kind of situation it's kind of cool because you see the reflections you see the flash go off um if you really look really really closely I and mean, you probably could even see me my actual face behind that flash because that's my flash but there's a moment in uh, in the last dance where they they have this angle from a different angle this this photo and this moment and you can see me kind of crawling around in the in the ball there you know <laughs> but it, it's tough because there's no real way to shoot this thing without getting reflection so Honestly, um, we've just kind of given up. <laughs> I mean, we just shoot it and we shoot it with, you know, big soft boxes. So we get a, you know, big, like, big reflection. But it's almost like shooting somebody with glasses on that you just, 
you know, you have to deal with it later. And oh, uh, so the, yeah. the, the flash that you see, the reflection of the flash can almost distort the photo you're saying, or just make it blinding for the... No, it's just the reflection. The reflection just looks crappy when not, not in this situation, which is like what we call flash on camera. It's kind of a news picture. But when, when, I, when I've had to do formal um, portraits of the MVP winner, or David Stern with the MVP winner, you know, um, or even beauty shots of just the trophy by itself or the trophy kind of at center court. I remember yeah. many times, you know, they'd have the trophy out there with the rings displayed. And sometimes it kind of helps because you'll get the ring of lights, you know, from the arena or whatever is reflecting back in. And so you've used that. In fact, when I, I shot magic for the, uh, for the NBA at 50 book, um, I had to do a portrait of magic and we actually used the reflection. I had him hold his Jersey. Hmm. And so you see him reflect, you see him obviously holding the trophy, but you see him reflected in, in the trophy. And we, um, you know, we used the trophy and the negativity of the reflection to our advantage. And I was very happy actually with how that turned out. Cause that could have totally gone the other way. <laughs> trying to find, I think I have that book somewhere in, yeah, that was a great book. That was so much I'm fun. To see if yeah. I have it over here, but the um, the moments that you were able to get with with Michael Jordan. Uh, mm -hmm. Now that we've watched the Last Dance, there's so many characters that you've captured over the years that maybe no one really knew, or scenes that no one really knew about. But now that um, now that it's been broadcast to the masses, it's it's really cool to go over. Like I, I did an interview at a podcast with Chris Chris Mullen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about that 92 uh, dream team experience yeah. Yeah. and just the places you went uh, were incredible, but also the fact that Michael would just play golf round the clock. <laughs> yeah. 30, 36 holes and then go to a game or 36 holes and go to a practice or whatever it is. And yeah. uh, there's this one shot here that I love for multiple reasons, but the fact mm -hmm. that his shorts, uh, his shorts are just pure nineties. Oh, that's crazy. Right yeah. You yeah. have the, the, the ocean in the background or the, the sea in the background. And mm -hmm. what I'm looking at is the outfit, mm -hmm. the peak, the apex of his swing. Uh, is he posing here or did you just no. happen to get this? No, no, he, he was, um, he was doing a couple of test swings. Um, this is in Monte Carlo, uh, probably the most, I can't imagine a more picturesque golf course anywhere in the world. What, what um, course is it? You know, I don't know, but I think I, I want to remember that this was the 14th hole for some reason, because it's some iconic hole. Um, golf people, I'm not a golf person, so people will probably know it, but it was at the top of this mountain. It was just insane. And I got to tag along. He was playing with um, Chuck Daly. I think PJ Carlissimo and Rod Thorne. Yep. There is a shot of the four of them. Yeah. Yep. And I got, I got to go along and that, and that was, you know, I just tagged along. I mean, you know, I say, Hey, can I go with you guys? And they're like, yeah, come on. And you drive the cart, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, I got to go along and Michael was super cool. And uh, no, he didn't pose for this at all. He was off to the side, just kind of getting his swing going there. And um Somebody else was teeing off at the time, I guess. Is, um, yeah, is he different is awesome. in terms of shooting him? Is he is his demeanor different on a golf course versus a basketball court or a basketball court? Uh, well, his competitive spirit is not different. Um, he, I think he's maybe more competitive on the golf course with uh, who he's playing against. But um, 
but at, you know, in terms of his nature, he's much more laid back. Yes, I mean, he's you know away from the glare of the cameras, except for me, <laughs> or else someone else, you know, following him around. Um, and there's no public around, and and he's with guys that he's very comfortable with, you mm-hmm. know, and um, and it's it, it's a you know secure location and all that stuff. So he he really lets his guard down, and I, I love being a fly on the wall for stuff like this. This this was. You know, nothing will ever come close to stuff like this, for sure. Is he uh, in the middle of, I mean, I guess he's, if he's on the 14th hole here, Andy, that means yeah. that he's probably up or down a lot of money if they're doing yeah. skins. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, those guys were pretty good golfers. So I'd have to leave it to better, better golfers. You should ask PJ or, uh, yeah. You know. Unfortunately, you yeah. can't ask Chuck, but Chuck was Chuck was ruthless on the golf course. People don't realize it. You know, Chuck Daly said uh, that there were three things he wasn't going to do coaching the dream team, right? One was he was never going to call a timeout. Two, was never going to get up out of his seat. And three, never miss a tee time. <laughs> so he accomplished all three of those things. <laughs> yes, that's great. That's great. There's um, another moment here that I want to hit is you in a fitness center. The photo is of Michael Jordan lifting some dumbbells. It looks like 65-pound dumbbells with an Air Jordan with the ones, uh, Jordan ones on there. And behind him, now people know who that is, Tim Grover with a wonderful mustache, a very tightly manicured mustache. And over his right shoulder – is a Madra shot in a Speedo or um, right. a Spandex. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere near that, Tom. But um, yeah, you're right. And you know who's next to Iman in the yellow shirt? Is that, who is that? That's the legendary Hall of Fame NBA writer, Sports Illustrated, Jack, Jack McCallum. Yes. And Jack, you know, as you know, recently wrote a Dream Team book. Um, so he and I were flies on the wall for so much stuff going on with the dream team. I mean, I hadn't seen this picture in a while and it came to life, you know, recently. And I see Tim's doing a lot of interviews and he's actually going to be on my podcast uh, coming up. Oh, great. Um, But man, Michael is ripped in this picture. (laughs) Look look at those biceps. Holy crap. So Tim was doing his job. That's for sure. I want to know how you get invited into these things. Are you, are you the one, are you the aggressor here? Like, Hey, I heard you going to the going to work out. I want to, I want to be in that room. Or is it like Mike's Mike's just hanging out and he's like, "Hey, uh, we're going to go work out and I want you to capture some of my muscles here uh, while I'm flexing." Let's go, Andy. Well, you know, Tom, a lot of this has to do with trust that I've earned um especially with Tim. I mean, you know, the trainer rules the room, yeah. right? So I learned that very early with Gary Vitti, who's my one of my dearest friends. Um, in life and in work. And, you know, if Gary hadn't welcomed me into the training room and understood what, what I needed to do and wanted to do as a photographer, I never would have been allowed in the Laker training room. I never would have gotten those behind the scenes moments with, with the Showtime Lakers all the way going up through Shaq and Kobe, you know. Um, and I never would have been able to um, have the confidence that that Gary, Pat Riley, Magic, those guys helped me build as a young photographer. So when I get to this point with Michael, you know, it's almost like Andy's part of the furniture. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I hate to talk about it in the third, in the, in the, you know, third party, but it, I just tagged along. You know, and my MO, quite honestly, is 
I go until somebody kicks me out. <laughs> so, but we, in this moment, we had gotten permission. We at MBA Photos, we at MBA Entertainment um, had gotten permission to, to photograph and shoot on video Michael's workout. So um, it wasn't that I just kind of hung around the door and, you know, sneaked in or anything. It, you know, we went through the channels on this, but again, Tim, Tim was very gracious and allowed us in. And of course, you know, Michael, of course did, but um, very grateful to have been able to shoot this. There aren't really any other still photos that exist of Michael lifting like this. Um, and I had the same experience with Kobe too, because Kobe was very private with his uh, weightlifting regimen. Hmm. When you talk about trust, Michael Jordan trusted Ahmad Rashad with mm -hmm. his life. I mean, like at his biggest moments, uh, and you can see in the documentary in his lowest moments, he would seek counsel with Ahmad. Is the fact that Ahmad had been an athlete um, part of what Michael Jordan didn't see him as a reporter, he saw him as a peer in some sense? Yeah, I totally think that has a lot to do with it. Also had, I also know for a fact what a great guy Ahmad is to hang out with. I've known Ahmad my whole career. Um, you know, I love seeing him whenever, you know, I don't see him as much as, anymore as I used to. Um, and Michael uh, was very, as you saw in the documentary, very, very selective with the people that were closest to him. And there had to be great trust there. There had to be friendship, camaraderie. They had to like the same things. You had to like golf. You had to like cigars <laughs> and like just hanging out. Mm -hmm. um, and he, uh, you know, he liked to surround himself with people that he he could completely just be himself with. And and Ahmad is that kind of guy. You know, to me, Ahmad has always been like that. I welcome the time when I could just hang out in a press room with Ahmad or we'd be on an MBAE shoot or an inside stuff shoot back in the day and, you know, just shoot the breeze. And he's that kind of guy. I, I really enjoy being with him. You mentioned Kobe Bryant, and I want to get to some photos of, of Kobe here. Um, this one's pretty iconic. The moment right here is, is where I – this is, I'm guessing – let's see. Maybe you can put me in where, mm. when this is. But it's Kobe and yeah. Michael embracing, dapping in, in a – looks like in a hallway locker room situation. Mitch Kupchak is – in the background, but those big boxy suits of the nineties slash early two thousands, uh, that we saw a lot in the documentary. So this was the many, many times that you saw, you were there for interactions between Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. What was this one? And what do you remember most about this scene here? Well, I don't remember if this was Kobe's rookie year, 96, 97 or 97, 98. So it was one of those years, but I went with the team to Chicago and it was a big deal. I mean, here you got, you know, basically the heir apparent um, and the master, you know, mm -hmm. squaring off against each other. And um, my job isn't done until these guys leave the arena. So I hung out in the hallway by the visitor's locker room and I waited. And then I accompanied uh, kind of, you know, the entourage of Kobe, Mitch, whoever. And... This picture just happened to happen. This is outside the Bulls locker room as Michael is walking out and Kobe is passing him. I mean, I don't remember. It was, it was totally not set up and there was no like, you know, meet and greet situation. It just happened to happen. And 
um, I was there and I made sure I got this picture. And it, it's a very poignant picture so many years later, but it was then too, because, you know, look at the expression on Michael's face. I mean, it's almost, it's reminiscent of a picture that I took many years later with Phil Jackson and Kobe at the 2009 finals. But it's almost like a big brother, little brother thing, you know? Yeah, um, it really is. Yeah. It's and, almost like uh, you're not, you're not coming, you're not going to, unseat me brother you're not gonna yeah. this is my throne and uh yeah it, but also there's some pride there there's some like man you got yeah you got some game kid mm-hmm. you know uh i'm gonna i'm gonna teach you a few things good. <laughs> yeah so uh i i didn't know michael and kobe nearly as much as some other reporters in this in this industry you mm-hmm. certainly as part of the media you had a unique relationship with both of them I did. I was not ready for the memorial for Kobe Bryant when it came to Michael Jordan coming out. I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. I was curious to see if Michael Jordan would be there. Mm-hmm. I was curious to see if Michael Jordan would speak, but I was just blown away by the emotion that Michael showed. And I didn't quite understand the depth of their relationship. Mm. Tom, I gotta tell you, that was one of the, uh, most earth shaking moments of my life. And, and there were two of them that happened within an hour of each other. You know, first was Michael speaking and then Vanessa speaking, which completely blew me away that she had the, the courage and the poise and the strength to do that. But um, quite frankly, I didn't know that we didn't, none of us knew that uh, who was going to speak actually that day. Um, so it was all a surprise. Um, including the entertainment. I mean, I didn't know Beyonce was going to be there. Who We didn't know anything. And so I'm there as the only photographer allowed on the floor to photograph this thing. And I have to put on my work hat. And it's one of the most tragic, saddest moments of my life. You know, I mean, I lost both my parents, so I can equate it to that. But in terms of tragedy, I don't think I've ever experienced a tragedy as earth shattering as, as he and Gigi and everyone else dying in that plane crash. So I'm down there and I'm trying to, you know, I'm tearing up. I'm trying to, you're I'm trying to trying keep to it together. Do, yeah. I'm trying to do my job. I mean, I'm there, I have to record this and uh, document it. And all I'm thinking about is that really I need to do this for Vanessa because she's going to want a record of this and the girls. And um, anyway, so Michael gets up there and wow. Uh, first of all, um, I'm like, oh my God, Michael's, Michael Jordan's going to speak. I mean, we rarely hear Michael Jordan speak. The only time I really had ever heard him speak at length was his Hall of Fame speech. And I was just with the team uh, with Charlotte recently, you know, before that in preseason where he spoke at a couple of press conferences in Paris. Um, but I, you know, really never heard Michael speak other than doing interviews, you know, post game or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, it just was an amazing, cathartic experience, I think, for all of us in the room, you know, the 20,000 people that were there, mm. to see him just let it all out. And it was completely honest. Um, he wasn't reading from a script. Um, he, was, he was just, he was just um, as shocked as we all were. And he was able to put into words what a lot of us were feeling, um, you know, with his own personal experience and, and what, the, what the loss meant. And I know he was thinking of his dad and the shocking tragedy of that and how suddenly that happened and came out of nowhere. Um, so I applaud him. I, I, uh, 
you know, if I could have talked to him afterwards, I mean, I just would have given him a big hug, <laughs> honestly, yeah. you know, um, and still uh, in awe of the fact that he, he was able to do that. Um, he didn't, he didn't care that he was Michael Jordan, you know, and, and up on this pedestal and this is a human being who had feelings who cared for this, this, this guy that, that he mentored, you know, and it was beautiful. When you think about Michael and Kobe together, what do you think about? Like what moment just jumps off the page where the image just comes to life of them two together? What stands out? Oh, well, I mean, I, I think of the, the teacher and the student pretty much. I mean, this photo sums it up a little bit, but then the all-star the all-star photo game. Yes. where, where, and Michael talked about it. He, he didn't talk about that picture per se, but he talked about how, what a pest Kobe was that he was just, he was relentless and picking his brain is like, dude, give it up already. We're at the all-star game, you know, but even at an all-star game during like a free throw situation, Kobe had the presence of mind, you know, and the, the relentlessness of curiosity, which is one of the, the tenants and the pillars of the Mamba mentality to sidle up to his idol and pick his brain about something, you know, <laughs> that's just crazy. Is so it that, true that he knew who you were when you introduced yourself? Kobe yeah, Bryant knew? Yeah, no, it's a true story. I mean, you, I think you've heard it and a lot of people have heard it, but yes, when I met him uh, on Laker media day in 96, I went up to introduce myself to this young 18 year old rookie who I'd never met. And like I always do, I introduced myself to a new player, you know, he's a new yes. player. Um, come in with a lot of fanfare, but to me, he's a rookie. And I introduce myself. I say, hey, Kobe, uh, I'm Andy Bernstein. I'm your team photographer. And he looks me straight in the eye. Yes, I know who you are. And uh, I'm thinking, hmm, okay, that's a, yeah, that's, a bit of a yeah. smart comment, but <laughs> I don't know how that's possible, man, because we never met. And he goes, well, I had all your posters in my room growing up. And I've told that story a lot, but every time I tell it, I, I keep reliving it because it was such a – um, pivotal moment in our relationship. I knew in that second that, that this was a different kind of kid. Yeah. And I actually, actually also saw a little bit of myself in this precocious, like 18 year old, because when I was 18 and I'm, you know, 20 years older than he was at the time, you know, I, I was, I was like that. I was very uh, driven and, and a little bit, uh, you know, on the edge <laughs> and, and, and a student bit, of the game in, and a, student in a of way, the game, just, yes, yes. You're yes. studying the predecessors before you. And yeah. it seems like right. who pays attention, no offense, but who pays yeah. attention to the little fine print in the bottom corner and remembers that name? The only people that pay attention that time are the other photographers because, <laughs> because we want to know who shot that poster or we want to know if we shot that poster. Um, back in the day, we wanted to know because a check might be coming, you know. <laughs> but it was, it's very competitive business. Um, you know, to this day, I mean, 40 years in, I still look at photo credits and I still am in awe of, of photographers that I work side by side with, Nat Butler, John McDonough, you know, the great photographers from the LA Times that I shoot with uh, from the wire services. I mean, one after the other. And, you know, sometimes like John McDonough, for example, is one of my dearest friends. I've been shooting next to him for almost 40 years, right? And I, I remember specifically getting the magazine when it would come out and looking, looking at a photo. And I was sitting next to John and I don't remember that 
picture happening. And I would call him and say, John, how, when, how did you do that? You know, it, it's just a magician. And, um, it's like, and we learn from each other, you know, and I'm sure you and your business, you know, it's the same thing. And, and it's still, um, a wonderful uh, learning process and I still learn from from everybody and hopefully the young photographers are learning from us and uh, that's how the story goes on all right let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation this is Mike Tirico introducing you to sports uncovered when I lose the sense of motivation and the sense of to prove something as a basketball player, it's time for me to move away from the game of basketball. Quote, unquote, I'm back. I'm back. The two-word facts from Michael Jordan announcing the most famous comeback in NBA history. That's the most impactful two words ever. Subscribe to Sports Uncovered right now to get the Michael Jordan episode automatically downloaded on May 28th. Now, back to the conversation. Got another one here for you. This is Kobe Bryant mm-hmm. wearing Michael's <laughs> jersey. Oh my goodness! Yeah, back yeah. in the day, yeah. he's got his Adidas on, <clears throat> yeah. baggy jeans. What's yep. the scene? Well, this was um, this was in I believe it looks like the forum because I remember the the color scheme, but it was one of the early finals in the, in the first in three peat. And he was homaging his hero. Uh, you know, Kobe was coming in a lot in a lot of different jerseys. He was wearing a Randall Cunningham jersey because he was a big uh, Eagles fan, as you remember. He wore Jerry West at one of the uh, rallies after one of the championships. But, you know, he was uh, very obviously homaging his hero here. And um, it was fun. It was cool to see. And I remember there was a photo I took in the locker room, I believe it was in Philadelphia, where he's getting himself taped and everything by Gary Beatty, and there's the Michael Jordan jersey hanging in the locker next oh. to him. <laughs> but I think this was taken at the forum because I kind of recognize uh, the cinder blocks. <laughs> yes, and and the tape in the doorway is great. Yes, right, exactly. So let's see. I have uh, another one I want to hit because uh, I I'm fascinated by the basically the the mechanics of getting the right shot and it's a lot of it is is you you leave it up to chance whether it hits the right way the right timing but this one is from this season i remember where i was (laughs) when this happened is the lebron james flying through the air uh, (laughs) legs scissored yeah um there's so many things that are amazing about this photo but the flash in the background is something I want to talk to you about. I have yeah. talked to you about this before in the past, but the, yeah. the everything has to line up here just perfectly. And yeah. I believe yeah. it's true, Andy, uh-huh. that you can see yourself yep. in this photo. Yeah, yeah. So a lot going on in this picture. By the way, the blue shoes are crazy, right? I yes. Mean, why, is, why is he wearing blue shoes? But anyway, it, it kind of adds to the mystique in this picture. You know, Tom, this is an angle that I do every single game. So, um, and we produce great pictures, we meaning myself and, and my assistants. And it's all about preparation, of course. Um, Walter Yost always says that luck favors the most prepared. And yes, this is a lucky moment that he was doing this particular move. We spend a lot of time doing 
the setup. It's a three to four hour setup every single game to set up our multiple camera system. Three to so, four hours before yeah, every game? Every game um, at home. And then we take it on the road in multiple shipping cases and uh, we bring the show on the road. So and then how long does do. it take to wrap? takes about two hours to wrap and my my assistant tyler that's his job um he's my uh the magician of our camera system um, i employ seven remote cameras every game and this is one of the seven so this is an angle that i invented which i don't mind saying because i did <laughs> um Back in the day, we used to do this angle, which is called the floor remote, meaning that the camera literally is on, placed on the floor. But it, in, the, in the old days, the camera used to be off to the side in front of a photographer and an assistant who would literally have their hands like on top of it so that if a player was coming towards it, they would yank the camera up and you know, player yeah. wouldn't fall on it. Well, lo and behold, players started tripping on the camera. A couple of players fell, got hurt, blah, 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 the NBA. Uh, rightly so, um, just said, you know what? No more floor remotes, guys. That's it. Yeah. And I, I was crestfallen, honestly, because it was really one of my favorite angles. And it was one of the angles that produced the most uh, photos, quite frankly. And so I spent that whole summer, this is maybe 10 years ago, trying to figure out how can I do this floor remote and have it be safe? And I, I remember going to Staples Center during the summer and had them pull out the stanchion. And in this, the basket stanchion has a pad in front of it, right? Yeah. So the pad is made of foam. So I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I can cut a hole in the foam at the bottom of the stanchion and insert the camera in so that the lens is behind and the whole thing is behind the plane of the foam, the front, and make it work. And I talked to my boss at Staples Center, Lee Zeidman, who thought I was literally out of my mind. Um, but he said, yeah, you know, give it a shot. Try it. But what happened, Tom, was that I had to actually have a foam pad to go in front of the foam pad because there wasn't enough depth on the basket, the one made in the basket for the basket. So, I, so we created this, this like dummy front, honestly, and wrapped it, you know, just like it was, uh, you know, with the NBA logo and all that stuff. And I had the hole and it created this tremendous angle. And um, so this, you know, fast forward, 10, 15 years ahead, we're doing this all the time. You know, at the NBA finals games, regular games, uh, doing it at WNBA games, uh, it becomes you know, our standard angle. So, you know, when, I, when my assistant literally texted me this picture as it came across, because he can see it immediately as it's shot. This particular camera is tethered in by ethernet to his his laptop in our production room and then it's also going back to our editor in new jersey at mba photos and and you know it was a pretty awesome moment and he texted it to me probably a minute later he goes this is pretty cool <laughs> i'm like yeah and to answer your question if you see javel mcgee in the back right and as you're looking at the picture to the right of javel and you have, you'd have to blow it up, but you can see me sitting there. That's me, where your little arrow is. And I'm, and I'm looking up, and I have the little plunger, the little red button in my hand, watching this thing unfold because it was a breakaway. So I had a couple of seconds to sort of gather myself and get ready for this. And I'm trying to time it. And all I could time, and because getting back to your other thing about the strobes, I can only take one picture every four seconds. 
you know, these giant strobes oh. and you see these big white lights in the, in the catwalk, they, they, they go off and the camera exposes and shutter opens, but then the strobes take four seconds to recycle back up. So there's no motor drive, there's no sequence, it's one picture, that's it. And that's how I've shot my whole career. So I have one, one shot at it and it was crazy because he went up and if you see the video, it happens in a millisecond, but he had the ball down low and, and I just knew instinctually that he's gonna do something with the ball. I don't know if he's gonna do you know a tomahawk or a double hand dunk or whatever, but as soon as the ball, he made a move with the ball in that instant, I pushed the button because I knew that probably the ball was gonna block his face, which probably- These are things I don't even think about. It's a like millionth of a second blocking, later, it did. Blocking yeah. the face yeah. is an important yeah. deal. Yeah, no, look, if I shot this a millionth of a second later, that ball would be in his face and we wouldn't be talking about this picture. So um, it, it was, yes, it was, it, it was lucky in a sense that he made this tremendous move and that took on a life of its own because, you know, is he channeling Kobe? It happened so close to the tragedy. People made a big thing out of that. You know, I don't believe he wasn't, and I take LeBron's word for it that he wasn't either. But who knows, you know, yeah. who knows subconsciously that he had seen Kobe do this dunk. And when you saw those two dunks, LeBron's dunk this moment and Kobe's dunk from the same basket, you know, at Staples Center, it's very eerie <laughs> because it is. literally is the same dunk. But, um, you know, it took on a life of its own, especially in this, this day and age with social media um, the fact that he, you know, Instagrammed it out um, to his bajillion followers was super cool. And, and you know, he, he called me out, which was really nice. I've never really had a how player. Often does that get, how often do you get called out by after, would you say, what, what, one out of how many times do you mm -hmm. see a photo of yours on a player's Instagram and you're like, hey, where's, where's the shout out? No, I honestly, Tom, um, all the players, all the moments, I don't think I've ever had a player actually comment about a specific photo like they've commented about me and my career or shooting them and blah 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 but not like directly a, spe a yeah. specific picture and you know i think i think he really liked this picture <laughs> so i uh i made a big print for him and framed it and brought it to the next game and i, I know he's got it hanging in the house so that makes me feel great <laughs> other thing in this photo that's amazing just the 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 banners but yeah that the NBA tickets.com logo almost yeah. seems superimposed. Well, it does, but you know, Staples Center has this great scoreboard where they have the screens and you can see the two video screens, yep. um, you know, facing each other. And then the other two screens are, you know, for whatever messages that they're going to put up. And that's a rotating thing. So, you so know, the NBA tickets.com logo that was there. Yeah. That it just was, happened to be there or that's it just always happened there to be me. there. Yeah. This, this was, um, this I believe this was a, it had to be a network game they're playing against Houston, so you know that NBA yeah, it was a TNT game. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So so that the they're rotating some national sponsor signage um, during that, and uh, you know something else came up probably right after this, but it happened to be NBATickets.com. So I'm still waiting for my packet of tickets, you know, that are good for any arena you know, for the rest of my life, because, you know, this picture has really put NBA tickets on the map. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you better get a cut of that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, it's cool. I mean, this is this is what we do. It's kind of cool that the Kings banners are back there because I love my LA Kings. And, 
um, it just shows the vastness of, of Staples Center and that, you know, that's my home away from home. So, you know, it's kind of cool. The strobe lights are amazing. And the, the fact that you have to wait four seconds for them to recharge or re- reset is yeah. just speaks to how of an art this is, is just how, how you have to time it perfectly. Yeah. And yeah. if you go to an arena, you don't notice it if you're a fan, but until someone mentions it, you don't notice the flash. It happens yeah. every time uh, something really cool happens at the rim. You'll, you'll almost always see a flash in the arena. Mm-hmm. And that, that traces back to you. Yes. I mean, this goes back to Sports Illustrated, who, who developed this technology in the 60s, where they would bring these gigantic flashes into the old arenas to supplement, well, not to supplement, to completely um, blast out the, the light that was in the arena, because the old arenas were just lit terribly. And you were very limited by your equipment and the type of film that could actually shoot fast enough for you to stop the action. And the quality of the light is so cool. It's like this crisp flash lighting. So John Zimmerman, Neil Leifer, Walter Yost, um, you know, all the greats of, of Sports Illustrated developed the system. And this is what I learned as a young assistant working for Sports Illustrated, that how to put these strobes into places like the Forum and Pauley Pavilion and the Sports Arena and then other arenas, you know, all over the country. There are only a few of us who actually knew how to do that mm. back in the early 80s, Nat Butler being another one. And he was a longtime assistant for Sports Illustrated. So when, you know, it was time for me to do my thing, I talked to people at the forum into letting me bring a set of strobes in and shoot a few games, uh, Kings games, Laker games. They liked the way the quality of light looked and type of photography I was able to produce and uh, it stayed the standard. Now we're the only ones, we meaning the NBA and, and on the NHL side, the NHL team photographers, we're the only ones who shoot strobes now. Back in the day, everybody was doing it. There was one point that I counted seven sets of strobes, meaning seven different photographers using strobes um, in the catwalk at the forum. So it would be like, boom, 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 like lights <laughs> going crazy. And yeah. TV, TV went a little nuts, and, and rightly so. They said, look, you know, let's bring it down to four, so you'd only see four flashes going off. Um, and they wouldn't go off at the same time, obviously. It depends on the timing of when the photographer would shoot. And then um, now, again, it's just, it's just us. So it's just one set going off. But I want to point out one other thing in this picture, Tom, which is yeah. – super interesting is that um, most arenas use the teams, the basketball teams and the hockey teams use what's called the arena lighting. It's basically an an umbrella lighting. And you can see in the top right and left, these square lights that are off, right? You can see them. Oh yeah. Um, Those are brand new led lights that Staples center put in that a lot of arenas have gone away from the mercury vapor lights, the big round lights, there are these LED lights, which are much crisper and, and the color temperature is better for TV and all that stuff. Well, the, the Clippers use that umbrella lighting and the Kings use an umbrella lighting, but the Lakers don't. <laughs> the Lakers use this supplemental lighting, which you can see these sort of orangey lights that are yeah. coming off of the Kings banners. They, use, they have put in this supplemental um, tungsten lighting into Staples Center to emulate what the lighting looked like back at the forum. And the forum, if you remember photos from there, or just watching highlights, it was almost like it was lit like a stage. 
And there are only two arenas that do this, Madison Square Garden uh, and the Forum back in the day. And now the Lakers wanted to bring that experience, that sort of stage light experience um, into Staples Center. Yeah, why, why when I watch M- Madison Square Garden games, it just looks different. Mm-hmm. That's why? That's why, yeah. Because they're lighting, they have that iconic ceiling, obviously with those rings. Yes. And then they're still using like a tungsten type of light, like so almost like a, sta- a stage light like you see on a Broadway show. And they're really only lighting the playing surface. So if it's the basketball court or it's the hockey ice, but then the, it completely falls off once you get to the crowd. You know, maybe the light spills off, you know, five, six rows into the crowd, but then it goes completely black. And that's the effect that they want. That's what the Lakers wanted. That's what MSG still does. Now, in this photo, okay, um, I'm doing essentially what the umbrella lighting does. I'm lighting the whole building with my, my strobes. There's eight sets of eight different strobe lights going off. You're only seeing two but there's six more going off, you know, above and behind and it's lighting up everything. But if you saw this on TV, it wouldn't look like this. It would look actually more stage lit. That man, I could talk about that for hours. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting um, decision that they made a few years into being at Staples center, that that's the way they wanted the Lakers wanted to light. And I love it. I love how it looks on TV. So I I wrote a story way back when about the strobe lighting and I think I mischaracterized your interaction with Phil Jackson at one point where <laughs> Phil uh you told me this story about how Phil would joke with you about hey can you quit it with the strobe lights cuz it's it's messing with the referees cuz they they don't get to see the yeah. call if you got yeah. these blinding lights in his mind, it was blinding the referees to make the right call. Mm-hmm. So the strobe lights actually come into a part in, in game action. Yeah, I mean, I, I would differ with what you said, and he was not joking. Uh, Phil was deadly serious, and he actually, I love him to death, but he campaigned very actively um, to remove strobes from from arenas that would not allow us to shoot with strobes. Um, he, he felt. This is a guy that you wrote a book with later. Yes. 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 And it, you know, it wasn't personal. He just, he just believed that, that in a critical moment that a referee could ha- could be not blinded, but your natural instinct is to blink the stroke of the flash. You know, I took a flash picture of you, you might blink, right? Yes. So the great irony they, of flashes. Yes. yes. Right. So you might actually blink. And, and if you're a referee, you might miss something. And then the, the real danger, especially um, much earlier before the TV cameras got much, much better and sophisticated and technology and all that was you'd, TV, when they did a replay, they, they would literally have a white frame. You know, they, yes. they, if they were stopping it on the slow motion replay, when the strobes go off, it would be a white, a white frame. So if they were trying to review the play, once, once video review came into play, which, you know, didn't happen for many years, they would, wouldn't have anything to look at because they have a white frame. And think about, you know, Derek Fisher's 0.4 or, you know, you know, is a guy on the line, he's not on the line, uh, did he get fouled, he didn't get, whatever. You know, there's a million scenarios. 
I can't say that I agreed with Phil because it's my livelihood, but I could see where he was coming from as a coach. Um, and uh, we had very lively discussions. Um, it's like arguing with your dad. You know, you're never going to win it, but at least you can get your two cents in. So, so what was the deciding factor there? The league said, hey. Well, the league, like I said earlier, the league um, uh, limited it to four sets of strobes, right? Oh, so there's then, a compromise. So there's a compromise. And then, you know, just by osmosis and by nature, uh, and organically, uh, we started seeing less and less entities use strobe. And now, again, it's just really one set of strobes, maybe two, because if I go or Nat goes into a visiting arena, we're using a second set of strobes um, alongside of the team photographer. So there could be two sets of strobes going off. Um, and it, it could still happen. To my knowledge, there's never been an occurrence where a game or a decision or a play has been decided because of a strobe burst, right? Mm. So now they have multiple angles. They can stop the action much better in the replay. Uh, there's a lot more factors going on. So I'm, I'm glad that that's never happened, quite honestly, because if it did, um, Phil might have won that argument. <laughs> yeah, and you'd have a, a tougher job taking photos. Um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So in that photo, like I remember when that video, ha when that dunk happened, LeBron James's dunk against Houston Rockets, it was, mm -hmm. I think it was the night of the trade deadline. For some reason, I'm imagining that. Mm -hmm. um, and the video comes out of the dunk, and I tweeted out, Hey, everyone, watch this video. You will be able to see the moment mm -hmm. that that dunk gets captured, uh, the photo gets captured. And yeah. it's, it's one of those things that you don't know it until you see it. And when you see it, it's, it's like, oh, my goodness, that, that's how it all works. That's how yeah. it all happens. And yeah. Yeah. so if you pause it at the right moment of the LeBron dunk, you can see. Now, one thing I've always wondered, how much time when you press that button, does the photo get captured? Is it instantaneous? It's instantaneous. It's, it, I mean, it's probably, I don't even know, in millions of a second. So but you're, not, you're not like, all right, I got I to gotta lead myself here and give myself yeah, a Yeah, no, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an electrical connection. So it's, it's equivalent to turning on a light switch. You know, um, you turn on a light switch, the lights go on. I mean, there's not you know, really a delay. There is a delay, but we're not conscious of that delay because it's so fast. But, um, but the technology is mind blowing if you think about it, because I'm sitting there across from, from where it's going to happen and I'm watching it unfold and I have to push the button. So my thumb actually, I, my brain has to tell my thumb to push the button. The button then pushes, makes an electrical connection to a radio transmitter on my side of the court which then tells the receiver for that camera on the other side of the court to fire that camera and the strobes and at the, the same strobe. time. Yes. So it's, it's an incredible technology, which honestly I don't understand, but that technology was developed by, by engineers from MIT back in the, back in the early nineties and we perfected it. And, uh, it was really, um, a very painful R and D process that, it took because <laughs> I love these guys, but they didn't understand like our world and how things worked and work, you know, in a laboratory or a studio. We're in a, an arena with 20,000 people and RF signals and all kinds of th things that could go wrong, you know, but we finally got it. And the case in point really was Michael Jordan's last shot, the last shot of the 98 finals. 
which was a true testament to that system. We call it the system, Flash Wizard system working, where the gooseneck um, against yeah. Utah '98. Yes, you can see all the fans yes. just going crazy in that yeah. moment because yeah. of the strobe and the that technology. Well, yes, but also um, the way that all unfolded was that I was in charge of the system, so to speak. So I had all my remote cameras set up on both baskets. I was positioned for that game in the corner, um, which is very unusual for me, but I was in the corner. And we not only used stationary or fixed remote cameras throughout the arena, but we also used human remote cameras. <laughs> so we had human drones. We had two photographers who were positioned in strategic parts of the arena. Fernando Medina was on the opposite baseline and Scott Cunningham was at, at the midcourt line elevated by the TV position, right? Okay. That they, their job, quite frankly, was to, was to compose and focus. This is all manual focus days in their camera, right? But they wouldn't actually trigger their camera. They would not shoot the picture. I would take the picture. I, when I push the trigger button, the camera in my hand goes off, all the stationary remotes go off, plus their cameras go off, right? All done by radio control. So that famous picture of, of Michael taking the shot 6.6 .6 on the clock, right? Yeah. You see the whole crowd, everybody looking up, face sideline to sideline, um, was shot by, was taken by Fernando Medina. Um, we like to say that I pushed the button, but he took the picture. <laughs> wait, how does that even, wait, if you press the button, doesn't that mean you took the picture? Well, we decided, my boss, Carmen, and, and all of us decided that it, if you're doing your job properly as a human drone, which means you're composing, you're focusing. It doesn't matter who actually pushed the button. You get credit for the photo. And I agreed with that from the beginning. And I agree to it to this day. We posted it on my Legends of Sport and my ADB Photo Inc. Um, Instagram and blog and everything else. Uh, a real team effort. And Fernando, rightly so, got credit for that photo. Um, but the, the, the whole <laughs> end story to it, Tom, is that the only guy who didn't get that photo was me <laughs> because I, I'm in the corner. Mean? Well, if you see the play unfold on video. Okay. I got the this, photo up Okay. Here. You got the photo. So you see Tony Kukoc bottom left. Yes. Right? I am just out of frame on the left side on the sideline, right in the corner with the sideline and the baseline meet, but I'm going up the sideline a little bit. So as the play is unfolding, I'm following Michael and I can see Michael. And just as Michael makes the move and Byron Russell stumbles, Tony gets right in front of me. Oh, no. So all I got in my, my viewfinder is a gigantic, out-of-focus red number seven, right? But I had the presence of mind, honestly, that I just knew that when Michael – I could see the bottom of Michael's feet, that when he elevated – I had to bang that trigger button because I knew that Scott and Fernando at least had a shot at getting this picture. So you, you did this blindly, so yes, to speak. hundred percent. Yes. This I, shot, one of yes. the most iconic photographs in NBA history. Right. You were just guessing. Uh, I was guessing, um, you know, some of it comes from experience. I'm just saying, I'm not, not guessing as like, right. a, you, there's no skill involved, but you, yeah. you're, 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 yeah. you're looking at Tony Kukoc's yeah. ass yeah. right here. Yeah. Just like, I don't, yeah. I can't see it, but I know right now, this has potential. Yeah, no, it, it's crazy. And the protocol that we have, 
And we learned the hard way over by getting burned a few times, we meaning all of us in NBA photos, is that when there's a last second shot opposite from you, from where you're sitting, our protocol is to do exactly this, shoot super wide, right? Sideline to sideline, see the whole baseline, you see the clock, you know, see the fans. What makes this picture even greater is how packed in the fans were at the Utah Arena, Delta Center at the time. I mean, literally, you can see they're right behind us, you know, the photographers. The seats go right up right behind on top us. Yeah. yeah. They're not, you know, it's a serious, like, straight-up rake. They're not, it doesn't go back, it goes straight up. And every single person, except for two people, <laughs> are jazz fans. And there's a kid up there somewhere who's holding up a number six or something um, in a Bulls jersey. Yep, right up there above the, above the, yeah. the clock. Isn't that great? And then this guy in the right with the Red Bulls jersey. Um, and, you know, Michael's just putting a dagger in their heart. I mean, they knew. People knew. You could see people's expressions, their arms on their heads, you know, praying. They knew that this was going in. <laughs> it hadn't got in yet, but they knew it was going to go in. So it's just such a, a testament, honestly, to all of us working together, to the system working that we took – it was so difficult to perfect. Um, and, you know, picture lives in infamy. And I, I honestly call this the greatest single still photo in NBA finals history. I really do. And I credit Fernando with having, with doing his job really, and having the presence of mind to do it the way he was supposed to. So all in all, how many people went into this photo being taken? Wow. Well, you got myself, uh, you, as the, the trigger puller, um, you got Scott and Fernando, the photographers, you had probably, we probably had, I had two assistants helping me set everything up. We had techs, um, you know, we were shooting film in those days in 98. So there were runners, people who were picking up film from us during timeouts or changing film on the remote cameras. Um, there were editors in the back, um, who, and then we were runners then taking the film to the lab. We had a lab open in downtown Salt Lake City. People would, these runners would rush the film to the lab from like the pregame and then bring it back to Delta Center so that my boss Carmen and, and his deputy Joe could be looking through it and editing it like during the game, you know. Um, we probably in 98, we, and then we had, we had a couple of geniuses from MIT, you know, from the company that, that designed it. Uh, they were there to make sure everything Wait, worked. Wait, those guys from way back yeah. when were on yeah. site to make sure nothing went out off without a hitch? Oh, yeah. though no, they were there because they understood the technology. I mean, we understood how it should work for cameras and such, but they understood you know, all the technology and, and the whatever computer stuff was, were actually in these units that made them work. Um, and we had to bring them because uh, honestly, that was way above our pay grade or our understanding. I didn't have like a, you know, a doctorate in electrical engineering. So <laughs> I was too worried about being a photographer. <laughs> oh, there's so I mean, there, there's this guy right here. If you can see my arrow, this guy, yeah, he's yeah. a Bulls fan, obviously. Well, you, what I also notice about this picture is that these little balloon uh thingies that people are yeah are the bangers bangers, yeah. bangers right yeah not many people are holding that in the air 
They're no. all on the ground. They're not no. excited to be using the bangers in this moment. No, but you also see right here, right next to the stanchion, next to NBA, you see a guy in a purple shirt. This one. Right? This guy has been a jazz fan since the team moved there. He's, he's actually a well-renowned dentist, believe it or not, <laughs> in Salt Lake City. One of the nicest guys is he and his wife. And they would hold up all kinds of crazy stuff during games, you know, when guys are taking free throws. Um, and I still see him. I go to Salt Lake for games, and he's still there. <laughs> Same dude. Um, but I see all my friends, my photographer friends down below. Nat Butler right there um, to the left of Michael looking down into the camera. Blonde-haired guy, you know. This one right he got, here? He got a pretty cool shot, too. And he had to wait for um, – for this guy car number 55 to get out of his way so that he could get Michael uh, elevating. And he actually made a great picture from that, but all the other local photographers in the red vests and the sports illustrated and all those people. So, you know, it's just fun to look at. What I love is the women who are screaming in these moments. There's one right here. Yeah. There's one right here. Yeah. Another right here. Yeah. Uh, right here. This one's yeah. really good. Yeah. They're just, yeah. they're trying, they're trying their hardest. Mm, yeah. to scream and distract Michael, but it, it didn't work in that. Yeah, moment. well, he, you know, he broke their heart. That is no doubt about it. I mean, and you remember after this, there was still time on the clock. Yes. And John Stockton had a hell of a look. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it just, just didn't make it, you know. Um, similar to what happened in Indiana, the same thing in that game seven. Hey, I want to ask you about this now that we're talking about it. What is it going to be like for you next season, whenever that is, if there are no fans, how is that going to impact your job? Uh, you know, it's going to be a different environment and different atmosphere, but quite honestly, it doesn't really impact my job. I mean, it, the backgrounds are going to suck. <laughs> you know? I mean, doesn't that, that, that's impactful, right? Is yeah, it but, it's, but it's the way it is. It's, this, it's the story of our time right now. You know, I remember in the very early days of the WNBA, um, you know, we used to have to shoot in a certain way. So we would get, you know, a good crowd, like more towards center court, you know, because it was kind of sparse in the end zones. And so, you know, it, 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 I, there's nothing I can do about that. And that's yeah. just the way it's going to be. And that's going to tell a story yep, for right. years and years to come. Um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of that game that Nat and I went down to shoot. Uh, the Bulls were playing the Magic in Orlando, and somebody stole Michael Jordan's jersey. So he comes out in number 12 in this generic jersey. Remember that? Yeah. And Nat and I were just, just crestfallen. We're like, oh, dude, we made this trip, and he's not wearing 23, and God, nobody's ever going to use on the these. Back. Yeah. yeah, nobody's ever going to use these pictures, and a waste of time. We spent like five hours setting up remotes. Well, that's taken on a life of its own. Look at the history that that is, you know, the, the famous Michael Jordan number 12 game. <laughs> yeah. So it's a negative so, into a positive. It tells yeah, a so story this, that in this, this moment will, in time. Right. This will live, live as a moment in time. And I'll be glad to be back on the court and, and doing what I do and be with, you know, everyone that I work with and the players and, you know, it'll just be great. And it'll be great to bring sports back to the, public because i think everybody's psychological makeup is really <laughs> suffering right now without yeah. having something to cheer for um and and a distraction too because sports has always been a distraction and now we don't even have that uh, in a time of crisis so we did with the last dance but now it's over yeah. so we got to figure something out now i do right. think that there's a little piece of you andy that mm. was so excited 
as a professional. Mm. It's okay to be excited when LeBron James decides to go to LA. It's okay mm-hmm. to be as a professional that Kawhi Leonard decides I want to play in LA and Paul George. Yeah. There's got to be a, a moment for you where you were pinching yourself this year. Like, holy shit, I get LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard and both of these teams are ready to come to a head in a possible, the first time ever a possible mm-hmm. playoff series between the Clippers and Lakers. Yeah, I mean, what what a gift at this point in my career, too. You know, I suffered through a lot of bad seasons with the Clippers. I loved them to death. I have always loved the Clippers and a very soft spot in my heart for them and the organization. And then the Clippers got pretty good, right? And then the Lakers went down. So we've never had both teams uh, relevant and good and and viable as contenders at the same time, right? Um, and the prospect, like you said, of them playing each other, having literally having a hallway series, and you know, it was like two freight trains heading towards each other for the conference finals. Um, you know, it could still happen. Yep. This is going to happen. Probably not going to happen in our building. You know, it might happen in some generic court somewhere, but it's still going to be basketball. And you're going to have still, to set up those cameras. We'll set them figure up. Figure out the catwalk. We'll do it. We'll do it. And uh, maybe we'll green screen Staples Center in or something. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be amazing. So, so before you go, I wanted to know, you've been up close and personal with Michael, Kobe, LeBron, and of course, so many others too. But mm. those three in particular, what is their pregame ritual? If you can tell me one thing in their pregame ritual that – is unique to that player that you've gotten to know about what they need to do to get ready for the game. What would you say about Michael and Kobe and LeBron makes them different? Well, um, you know, a lot of, most players prepare and they, they have a ritual and uh, I see it every night, you know, with, with what these guys do in the training room or the weight room uh, meditation. And that has grown over the years, you know, starting really, I guess, you know, in the Showtime era, they didn't do a lot of that, but guys were very superstitious back in the day. I guess it would be more of that than it is. Yeah, you have to be conscious of that. It's like, I I want to get him in this space, but I also don't want to mess with his head. Right. But it's it's very obvious that that the three guys you mentioned sort of take it to the next level, you know, that they have a routine of preparation. Um, All three of them usually come in before anyone else. Michael, I remember, used to love to come in super early. And, and we found out during the last dance that it wasn't really to prepare or lift weights or whatever. He just left a kibitz in the locker room. Sam Smith told me on my podcast, you know, he, that he and, he and Michael would just sit, you know, and chat like three, four hours before a game, you know, because he just loved being in that environment. And, uh, you know, Kobe, of course, famous for coming in super early and, and sequestering himself. Um, the LA Kings were very generous to let him use their training room down the hall from the Lakers so he could do his private workout, his meditation, his body work, whatever he had to do to get ready. And that continued on the road um, in, in every arena we went to. And LeBron's the same way. I mean, that guy has an incredible routine. First of all, LeBron is the most punctual guy I've ever seen in my life. I mean, we know for a fact <laughs> that is a 7.30 game that literally at 3.30 on the dot, he will walk down the, from the loading dock towards the locker room. I mean, religiously. And I think what happens is he sits in his car in the loading dock 
and gets himself ready. And, and he's so regimented that that's how he operates. And it, it makes it great for me because I don't have to guess. I know he's going to be there at 3.30. I get there at 3.31. He's already in the locker room. <laughs> True story. So wow. he's got his routine. You know, he's in there with his uh, personal trainer, Mike. Yep. They he's have an incredible regimen that they go through. I mean, I don't know how he's not exhausted really before the game. Um, sometimes he'll come out and shoot. Usually he doesn't, but uh, sometimes he does. He's in the weight room. Um, but it's all about preparation. It's all about um, mental preparedness. Um, you know, I've told this story where I would see Kobe meditate during the national anthem. He'd be standing there in the line with the guys. And I have a photo of it. It's in our book of him literally meditating like during an NBA finals national anthem. You know, I mean, his heart rate is probably, you know, and mine is going like this. <laughs> and it's just the way he was. I mean, it's just um, these guys just take it to a different level. That's really cool. Yeah, I remember, I remember one time uh, LeBron was playing here in Charlotte. And I just done a story about the bubble, these like bubbles that he uses to stand on. Yeah. These clear yeah. like pillows almost that, right. um, that he stands on. And I'd done a story about how they, these, these really odd orbs that he stands on. And yeah. so I took my phone out and I was taking a picture of it and his yeah. security oh, they went sprinted nuts. Yeah. across the room yeah. and just basically like verbally assaulted me and said, delete that right now. And I was like, yeah. delete what? And they're like, the photo. I was like, oh, I'm not allowed to take a photo. They're like, no, 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 no. You're absolutely not allowed to take a photo of, of LeBron working out before a game. Yeah. Out on the court maybe, but not here. And I was like, okay. So Andy, I delete the photo and I put the phone in my pocket and the security guy goes, get your phone back out, <laughs> open up your recently deleted photos and erase those photos too. And I was yeah. like, this is, re this is no, no joke. This, yeah, this is like secret service stuff. But, but you know what? I respect it totally. I mean, I do. I mean, I, I don't know about the method that they went, you know, that they did it, but I respect the fact that this is his private uh way of doing business and i've been told the same thing you know i've been allowed in and i you know usually ask first uh but i've been told hey can't shoot that you know yeah. that's okay and and he is extremely regimented i mean if you if you watch him um the way he lays the towel out on the floor always the same exact way the way he has you know the the ball here and the weights there and it's just you know, I respect it because it's, this is the way I operate. You know, if I think yep. about how I do my job, probably how you do your job, you know, we have our way, our quirky ways of doing things, but they work. Yeah. And it, and, and it makes him who he is. It helps him get in that state. And I think yeah. people think that baseball players are idiosyncratic and superstitious mm -hmm. because it's an individual sport. And we can see their routine, like Nomar Garcia Parra, with you know, flipping up his, his, his yeah. batting gloves, right? Yeah. But I do think that NBA athletes are just as superstitious as, mm -hmm. as baseball players. It's just we don't get to see them in – there's not that moment, maybe the free throw line yeah. or right after the national anthem when LeBron does his thing. Right. You don't really right. get to see it as much as, as it is in baseball. Yeah, um, I, think, I think that might have started maybe with like Pete Maravich with the floppy socks, you know, that uh, – you know, and then uh, – Michael wearing his UNC shorts yep. under his bull shorts. And, um, you know, we, we hear about all this stuff, but look, they, whatever works, works, right. I know that I have my quirky things that I do in my life. 
that my kids are like, dad, you know, you're like OCD on this stuff. But I'm like, you know, it's just the way I work, <laughs> the way I operate. <laughs> yeah, I have to check like 15 times if I put this in the camera bag or I forgot that. I drive my assistants crazy because like I'm always second guessing, you know, when we go on the road, especially because it's happened, honestly, that we've forgotten this, that, and the other thing. And I tend to, you know, I'm an old guy, so I like to try to, you know, be careful that we have what we need. <laughs> well, it pays off in a big way. I am so glad we, we, this has been the longest pod that I've done in a long time. Yeah, super fun. Because I had man. so thank much you. fun here. Um, so I thank you so much for joining me and running through these photos and teaching the audience about the, the science, the art, the magic that goes on before you see the photo. There's so much that goes into it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hope that we get to see a shot. You know, we've seen the magic in Larry Bird shot from Andy, Andy Bernstein, uh, you know, mm -hmm. wrestling underneath the basket. We've seen Kobe and Michael. We've seen LeBron and Kobe. We might be getting some epic photos this summer, I hope, uh, once the season resumes. And, uh, mm -hmm. and you'll be right there in the thick of it. So thanks so much, Andy, for, for taking the time. Oh, Tom, um, I really enjoyed it. I, you know, I love talking to you. You're so knowledgeable and I appreciate the time and uh, anytime, man. I, I, and I hope I can come back when we're back on the court and yes. maybe we have, you know, a playoffs or a finals to talk about. So that'd be great. Yes, that'd be great. Let's well, um, have a great rest of your day and uh, we'll talk soon, hopefully. Okay when that season resumes. All right, man. Take care. Stay well. All right. That'll do it for this week's episode of The Haber Show. Big shout out to Andy for coming on. That was super fun. Uh, go follow him on Instagram, ADB Photo Inc. And also listen to his podcast. Check it out. It's called Legends of Sport. That was a lot of fun. If you can't get enough of this last dance or 90s nostalgia, go listen to the recent episode with David Aldridge from The Athletic, who appeared a lot in the documentary we're going to review all 10 episodes and also before that we did a round table with nbc sports chicago uh, will purdue longtime bulls player and teammate of michael jordan was on that one also kendall gill who faced michael jordan in the playoffs he was on that pod as well as bulls insider casey johnson who does an amazing job covering the team uh, also j.a donde pablo torre also on the pod breaking down the last dance and if you can't get enough after that, Chris Mullen joined the podcast as well. So go check that out. Subscribe, rate, and review. Go tell your friends. And uh, please stay safe out there. And we will talk soon. Until next time. <laughs>